Welcome, welcome, welcome to Building a Black Educated Pipeline podcast. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educated activist dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Major shout out to all our co-conspirators out there watching, listening today. You've come to the right place where we talk to real people in the real struggle, doing the real work. It is my favorite time of the month, y'all. We are joined by Dr. Greg Carr, Associate Professor at Howard University, host of In Class with Carr, The Black Table, and Chief Sabah of the K-Narrative. Dr. Carr has joined us today to discuss the role that politics play within education. Today, we're going to get into propaganda and the sudden increase of banned books across the country. So super excited about that topic. Welcome, Dr. Carr. Always good to be with you, Mama Shana, building that pipeline that was destroyed by, deliberately, but it's being rebuilt. It's always, always good to be with you. You know our mission, brother. We got to try to rebuild that 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 black teacher pipeline. Most definitely was destroyed. No question. No question. Easy. So with that, right? You know that destruction is is intentional. Uh, we know it wasn't by accident at all. That's right. Um, what leads me to to open up this conversation, um, and I ask people this often: Is education political? Um, and, and and think about it in the confines of this country, because I'm pretty sure there's places where it's not right. Like learning is. It's lifelong, right? Like, it's just a part of the air you breathe. It's a part of what you do. Like, it's it's the habit of, of some cultures. But in America, is education political? Yes, I think it's political everywhere. I mean, mm. uh, our great ancestor who um, was very close to and uh, a lot of us gathered the third week in September at the Atlanta University Center and had a two-day Asa Hilliard Symposium. In honor of him, his family, we were going to do it right before COVID and then COVID hit. So this is, it's been delayed for a couple of years, but we were finally able to gather. And um, in fact, uh, interestingly enough, Dr. Joyce King, who is the Benjamin Mays chair uh, for teacher education and, and, and related issues at Georgia State University, who's kind of stepped into a part of the role that Asa Hilliard played for many years at Georgia State as the Fuller Callaway professor of education there. Um, she started her discussion on the second day of the conference with an op-ed that was in uh, on the July, I think July 28th of 2022 HuffPost uh, website from our brother, Chris Stewart. So uh, calling black children the new cotton. So uh, it's, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's that's our man's. And so we had a whole conversation. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But I, I'm raising all this because Asa Hilliard used to always say, this master teacher, educator, school superintendent, uh, education dean, uh, worked everywhere from Monrovia, Liberia to San Francisco, the last few decades in Georgia, Georgia State, traveled the world, historian, um, very important figure. He used to say always that the central role of education in a society is socialization. And when you think of socialization, you think of the fact that in traditional African societies, there is no school building. Why? Because human beings learn by imitation, primarily. That's what we do. And if you want to learn something, you follow people who know how to do it. So the classroom was everywhere. The Yoruba people would say the world is a shrine. And I like to say the world is a classroom. So there wasn't a need for a building because as children grew, 
they look to older children and those older than them and then adults to model the behavior, to model the content, to model the skills that they would have to acquire to keep the society going. Well, that's no different today. It may look different in form, but ultimately every country in the world has educational system that theoretically uh, conforms to the objectives, desires and needs of the people who live in that country. So it becomes more political or more obviously political, say, for example, when you're not in South Korea or you're not in one of the Scandinavian countries. In other words, you're not in a country where there is more cultural homogeneity. You know, everybody is more or less the same or similar in terms of language, in terms of shared beliefs, rituals, icons, shrines, totems, have you want to look at. And you come to a criminal enterprise like the United States of America that isn't a nation that doesn't have a common set of memories or references. In fact, that is formed out of settler violence and ongoing mm-hmm. violence against people who are not considered American by the cultural definition. That would be everybody who's not white. And so how do you create a system in a society like that to educate everyone when the politics of how the people got here and what their objectives are, are clash? Well, there's, of course, that means that it's overtly political. Every act of education in a society where the people experience extreme inequality based on race, based on uh, income or class, based on gender, uh, based on difference. Well, then every act of education in terms of formal education is absolutely political. I love I love I love how you like weave that through. And I think the big thing to, to take from this when you're talking about other societies and the homogeneity that exists, right? That they're aligned. So inherently in America, <laughs> it's all misaligned, which makes it overtly political, right? Which makes it a problem at its core. Because my follow-up question when I ask people, you know, is education political? Is like, well, should it be political? And and here in America, you it, it has to, right? Like we're put in a in a place in a defense where it actually has to be. Um, when we talk about African cultures um, and folks that you just spoke about where your world is a classroom, it becomes political in a sense of how people are going to survive and socialize, but not in the sense to brainwash, have people take sides, uh, put out misinformation, bias information. Like it doesn't exist in that way. And I think that is why here in America, it is overtly political. It's shameful too, right? Like when I think <laughs> it is, uh, when you think about the way in which education is used um, as a tool to be extremely political. And what's brought me to this thought, right, is, you know, we are at the end of September, um, beginning of October, but what comes in November? Election. Yes. So be, be, because that's coming up. You see nothing but smear campaigns and ads, right? Like just all over TV, just back to back to back to back to back. Um, and you think about, right, the who the consumers are of, of, of television. You also sit and think about the different messages that our children begin to receive and at what ages about our political system and what that all means, right? So my mind like intersects in, in that way when I begin to think about is education political and what are the politics of education? So not just politics in this world, because we think about politics 
around elections, right? And I think that's how people form their thoughts around politics. When you think about politics, you think about politicians. When you think about politics, you think about the United States government. Some people can go granular and think about their local government. But people don't talk about the politics that are surrounding the things that are causing our, our survival. Um, and one of them is education. Um, so there, there are politics um, in education. And I hate it, right, when you're dealing with kids and you're talking about things that are political um, and you're dealing with people's lives. But there's most certainly um, the politics of education that exists, without a doubt. So I agree with you there, Doc. Yeah. Well, I mean, people grow up, children grow up to be adults. And politics are no problem as long as your politics conforms to the politics of whatever society you find yourselves in. So black folk were just to go along with a hierarchy that extends the afterlives of Jim Crow, what um, what Carter G. Woodson called the sequel to slavery. And I'm sure that there are some true hillbillies out there uh, in the world who would like nothing more to make sure that all the copies of Carter G. Woodson's 1933 book, The Miseducation of Negro, was taken from all libraries and all uh, schools. And of course, to do that, they would have to actually go into a school. First of all, they had to be able to read, but then they would have to go into every school and see whether the book is there in the first place. And, and unfortunately, there are many libraries that don't have that book. But if you don't have it, you should go get it. Uh, but mm -hmm. in that book, he calls uh, Jim Crow the sequel to slavery. And as long as black folk participated, if at all, in public education or formal education of any type, which prepared them to uh, continue to occupy a low rung in the society, what Donald Franklin Spivey called uh, schooling for a new slavery, then, then those politics will be fine. That's the politics of white philanthropists uh, like the General Education Board, Rockefeller, Carnegie, all the folks who poured their meetings in places like Cape and Springs, West Virginia, Lake Mohawk, New York in the late 19th century to determine what should the curriculum be when we're trying to literally is what they call this kill the Indian, meaning what? Not kill the Native Americans physically, but destroy their culture, make them cut their hair, say they can't learn their languages. This is the string of native schools that we found, including one there in Pennsylvania, Carlisle, which is where the great Jim Thorpe, the athlete Jim Thorpe went to. They want to destroy the culture of the Native Americans. Well, uh, the other uh, agenda for these folk was how do we provide an education for black people to the degree we want to provide any public education for them that helps school them to occupy the laboring classes. So just enough math, just enough writings and readings so that they don't get in trouble, but they're going to stay on the farm. They're going to stay working for us for lower, no wages, these kind of things. That's the kind of education they wanted for us. But we always wanted another education for ourselves. And that's where the politics gets in trouble. As long as you're conforming to the education system that says, hey, we got a new million dollar program from Johns Hopkins or Stanford or University of Chicago. We're going to try it on your children. And we say, OK, then. You know, that's cool. Now, of course, the children of the people who wrote that curriculum don't use those curriculum because it's not for them. It's for you. But the minute you say we're going to develop our own curriculum, we got some own ideas. Oh, hell no. What are y'all doing? That's that old radical. See, so politics are cool as long as your politics conform with the people who want to keep you in the system that is that exists in your place. The minute you start engaging in what Paulo Freire might call and others radical education or uh, the surplus value of education, you're taking your reading and writing and doing stuff like 
our Freedom School young people do or the Algebra Project folk in Baltimore do, which is challenging the school policies or mm-hmm. asking why you don't have AP and IB classes or finding out wh- how much are y'all paying teachers and why aren't you paying them more and why do you overwork them? OK, now we got a problem. Now that's when they call education political. It's always political, but when the politics clash is when it's a problem, not when it conforms to the general you know, objectives. And many of those politicians want us to basically be quiet, take a crappy education and move forward. Yes. One of the other parallels that I drew is like in times of war, right? People use propaganda. Propaganda is a tool to put out misleading information, to put out biased information. Like it is an actual tool um, that is used in times of war. The question then becomes, well, what happens when a country is constantly at war? (laughs) Right? If I'm constantly at war, that's right. If my mission is to then kill the Indians, as you say, um, and we already know there's secret meetings about killing black people as well. If that is the mission um, of the people who want to maintain the status quo or the position of, of their political interests, then what tends to happen? You put out propaganda in order to carry out that mission. So for me, you can't say that then when you look at our education system and the things that our children are reading, the things that we're actually teaching our children, all we're doing is advancing propaganda uh, for the folks to me that you, you know, that you just referenced and that you just spoke about. But I don't, I don't know how many of us sitting in seats in education um, and teachers and school, but I don't know how many of us really realize that we are peddling uh, propaganda because of how people think about politics. If, if I'm in a classroom and I don't see myself as a politician or people will say things like at work or even in education, like, you know, we shouldn't talk about politics here. You know, that's against HR regulations, right? So meaning, right, I can't talk about if, if I'm a Democrat or Republican here, because none of that matters because we're all in this school together supporting these children, right? So people don't think as themselves, as actual tools um, to support or further people's political ideologies. They just don't. <laughs> and and, and in, in that silence promotes political ideology. So mm-hmm. in that same classroom, if someone came in and said, I stand with Ukraine, it would be a problem. Even though the vast majority of countries in the world have either stayed out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict or said the United States and NATO and the EU is just as much to blame as the Russians. In fact, we just left September. Of course, we know the United Nations meets um, every September in New York. And country after country after country reiterated its criticism of the United States embargo against Cuba. And this happens every September. But if you come in there and say, you know, we are against the dictatorships in Cuba in that classroom, nobody says anything. Why? Because that's the correct politics. Mm-hmm. And then if you say, well, you know, in Cuba, they have nearly 100 uh, percent uh, literacy and they've done quite well in spite of the embargo. Now, see, here you go making things. political. Wait, no. <laughs> if I had said dictatorship, you would have no problem. In other words. So there's never a space in the classroom that it, where politics isn't absent. The politics is people call it political when you say something that isn't on the propaganda script. And let's be very clear. Those are two examples of propaganda. Propaganda. Yes. Yes. Tell it. Preach it. Say it. And I think then my concern becomes right because our children become casualties of war. 
they become the casualty of war. So whether it's their mind, whether it's their spirit, or whether it's the physical casualties that we're experiencing out in the street, our children are the ones that become casualties of war. So then I am play on, on educators, and definitely because this show is about building a Black educator pipeline, just not the operational pieces of how we're going to do it, but building quality educators that are going to be in front of our children. So how do we then prepare and send people out to help our students fight against the propaganda? How do you then employ the, <laughs> the masses to understand what critical thinking really is? Like, explore what's put in front of you. That's tough. Um, something that, that Chris wrote in his op-ed that uh, Dr. King quoted at the Hilliard Conference, he said, in the American public education system, black children are the new cotton. They're a headcount that generates revenue for a national army of experts who fight fiercely to keep our kids per pupil revenue locked up in whatever cartel they control. Black people are the most studied and the least taught. They are perfect captives because you can raise funds for their bodies without ever being held accountable for improving their minds. So there's millions of dollars poured into teacher education and professional development and all this. And it never reaches the children because the education profession has been so reviled, so assailed in this criminal enterprise settler state called United States that those who aspire to become teachers are often discouraged from entering the profession. And it isn't always about salary, but it's about respect. It's about support. And so when you ask the question of how we enter classrooms to help young people uh, achieve their human potential in ways that contribute to society, you're talking about a system that was set up to prevent them from doing that. And, you know, I just want to spend a second. Uh, I spent uh, the third Wednesday in September interviewing my friend, Leslie Fenwick, who um, we had to get her, you, the two of you all to talk. Her book, and I've mentioned this book several times, Jim Crow's Pink Slip, The Untold Story of Black Principal Le and Teacher Leadership, came out Harvard Educational Press, and they can't keep it in print. Leslie, we were talking Wednesday before last, and she said, I can't keep it in print. They, they keep running out. They just did another uh, issue. A uh, uh, publication run. She talks about the hundred thousand black teachers and principals that lost their jobs after Brown versus Board of Education. Prior to 1954, the vast majority of black students in the United States of America were in classrooms with black teachers. But of course, after Brown, really about 15 years after Brown, because they weren't ever going to desegregate. They were going to let a few blacks in this kind of thing. But systematically the 17 southern and border states systematically fired demoted transferred black principals and black teachers now of course when you demote a black principal you are now crushing the pipeline because the principals hire the teachers mm -hmm. and when you get rid of black teachers what the, the the basic pact these racists had was we will if we're if we're forced to have some of your children we'll take them but what we're not going to do is let you teach your own children. We're going to destroy the teaching force so that you we will control your children. And that's when you see this. And, and you ain't teaching ours neither. And you're not teaching ours. Oh, no question. Even the black schools. That's a, Shane, I'm glad you said that. Leslie Chronicles in case after case, the black teaching force up until Brown was more qualified than the white teaching force. Many of them, not only in addition to college degrees, most of them HBCUs in the South, 
They had master's degrees and PhDs because these racist southern states like Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee would send them out of the state because they couldn't go to graduate school in the state. So you get a master's degree from Columbia or a PhD from the University of Illinois. And then you come back and teach elementary school, junior high school, high school by the thousands. And so when you destroy that, you had cases where formerly all black schools, segregated schools led by a PhD principal replaced by. And this is no exaggeration. She's got a case in here. A milkman became the principal of a school in Louisiana. Somebody who's a day laborer becomes the principal. Now, the person or somebody who just got their teacher certification or is working on their teacher certification and that former principal comes the AP or they promote them to be over uh, Title One at the school at the school district headquarters and give them a nothing job or make them the discipline dean, this kind of thing. Now, here's the crazy thing. One final thing. He said, well, that was then. This is now. Certainly black school teachers now must be not as qualified as white teachers or maybe they're equally qualified. <laughs> what Leslie documents is then the black teaching force was more qualified in terms of certification, degrees, experience, and now, when you look at all the black school teachers in the United States of America and compare them to the white school teachers, black teachers are more experienced, have more education, more certifications. It's like, so this isn't just the 50s. No. So when you ask the question, how do we attack this? Well, and, and of course, the center is absolutely doing this work, given the fact that what we face is not accidental. It was absolutely deliberate. It had the support of the federal government. The Nixon administration particularly worked overtime to, to make this happen. We are going to have to attack this in terms of policy, in terms of attacking policy by making sure we have elected officials who come in to support teacher education, support hiring black teachers and administrators and so forth. We have to attack this in the classroom in terms of curriculum and instruction empowering teachers, empowering administrators to be able to deliver that content by helping infuse that content into their teacher education programs, which means we got to look at every teacher education program in, in colleges and universities around this country, particularly the HBCUs. We have a very unique opportunity. HBCUs still produce the majority of black teachers in this country. You know what I'm saying? And people saying, well, I, you know, I, I'm not really political or I can't get involved in that or I don't know much about curriculum. OK, here's something everybody can do. When your child comes home, when that child in your community comes home, when that community child in your church or synagogue or mosque or community center comes into the space, ask them what they learned today. Because something Asa Hill used to always say, he says, our children come home every day and tell us, mom, it was a fight today, not a physical fist fight, talking about a battle over curriculum with a teacher. And then... Many times our parents will say, well, baby, just do your best and go back. And the child comes back the next day. I'm telling you, it's a war. <laughs> and then he said, no, nah, baby, just go back, get your homework, listen to the teacher because we respect education. You know? <laughs> and then the child comes back and says, today they wrote me up for laughing. Now, the child wasn't doing anything. It's the same thing they did at the Little Rock Nine who would come out of Dunbar High School, come out of uh, Horace Mann High School in Little Rock, the black schools, integrated Little Rock High School and immediately started getting in trouble. Why? Because those white teachers who had erased the black teaching force, we got your kids now and we about to beat them up. Asa said, our children come home every day and tell the adults we are going to war every day. Help me. And the adults often tell them just to be quiet. And then when they get suspended, now the, now the parent got to go up to the school and they want to fight. They want. No, when that child comes home today, here's how you can help. 
ask them what they learned, go over their stuff. And then if you're not satisfied, you do the same thing. These racist, anti-critical race theory, book banning white parents do. You go up to that school and turn this mother out. That's what you do. You know what I'm Because they ain't built like that. They think they built like that. But when we start doing that, this whole thing will change. Doc, I'm so glad that you pointed that out and said that. And for people listening right now, I don't want to hear well, sometimes the responsibility got to be put on the kids and the parents. Some of these kids is bad. When you look at the percentage of children who actually have behavioral issues or who, who misbehave, generally it's about 5% of the school population. It Teach. is not 95% of the kids in your school that don't care about education. And I'm not even saying that 5% don't care. They have behavioral challenges. But that's literally about 5%, right? And then some people want to go and quote in special education numbers. Every child that has an IEP or in special education doesn't have a behavioral challenge. They may have a learning disability. They may have something else. But don't group them I all have a in. a piss poor teacher. That, that too. And have had piss poor education since the time of putting them inside a school building, which then contributes to that. But I, I want to defute that because the first thing somebody will listen to you say and automatically think about the one child, the one child in their school that gives everybody hell and, and make that the narrative of black children. And I have an issue with that because it's just not so. So you are preaching facts and you say when a kid is coming home and telling you certain things. And I mean, I, I've been at war sometimes inside schools. Um, I've got labeled as the administrator of the person who is us against them, meaning I side with the kids. And it's not that I side with children. I'm going to be fair. Just because you're an adult and you have something to say doesn't mean that the kid is always wrong. I'm going to listen to children. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to advocate. And I am even more critically concerned. And I'll, I'll just say it right here. When it is a white woman who's not culturally competent saying something about a behavior that scares her, um, that she doesn't agree with, that she doesn't completely understand. Right. I can understand where you're coming from as well, but I need to hear if this is something that is punishable or, or needs to be by consequence for this child. And I think us as parents need to be just as critical when That's our kids right. are coming home, telling them that they're having issues within their school buildings, especially with teachers and administration. I agree with that 100 percent, Doc. No, 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 you've said it. I mean, we need everybody. Those parents need to respond. And, and what you describe in terms of how you've moved through administrative spaces and teaching spaces is absolutely critical. So many of us in the buildings are silent. And, you know, Asa used to always say this as well. And I think about my friend Kenyatta Ajinia, who was one of his apprentices. He said, give me the children who act up. Said, Why do you want those children? Because you ain't broke their spirits yet. And in case after case after case, what you find is very effective educators who happen to be the, quote, in school suspension teacher, very important educators who happen to be the after school. You got to stay after school teacher. You say, well, how did that happen? It happened because a teacher must first illustrate, demonstrate, model for that student that they love that student. And if a student believes, if a young person believes that you're invested in their future, you see the behavior change. And we know that because some of us were those children. They couldn't sit still. And this is where culture comes in. I mean, I think there are a lot of white educators who are well-meaning, who are extremely dedicated. But quite frankly, if you come into space and your first reaction is fear, then you shouldn't be in that classroom. You need to go back through teacher education. You need to maybe be reassigned somewhere. Because if you're scared of a black child, 
you have no business standing in a room with that child because guess what? The child is not stupid. And when they smell that on you, they are children, meaning what? They're not adults. Now we are adults and you know, both of us are educators, lifelong educators. And I laugh about a lot of people who are writing books and making comments who, if you drop them in a classroom, they would leave weeping after maybe one day, but the experts, right? But those of us who teach and we who teach black children, oh, we know what's going on. It's not that difficult. We can separate out between, this is a real challenge. We're going to have to come up with some, and, oh, that's just this kind of behavior. When a phrase, a gesture, a look can immediately, and, and a lot of the schools, you know, that's the person you make into your deputy. Oh, I see you are a leader. You ain't here. You didn't organize this whole class against the substitute. Okay, so we're going to need to get you on our side. <laughs> Go around and collect the assignments. Okay. And meanwhile, a white teacher, I'm just scared. Why? Because that same person looking at a white teacher who smelled that fear, that same child is like, oh, you scared? I'm going to try you. I'm definitely, definitely going to step over this line and try you. When my favorite, my favorite line that kids sometimes would be like, I don't care if you mad. I don't. I don't care. <laughs> oh, you raise, oh, you raising your voice. You huffing your chest out. That's supposed to do something for me. Go right. sit down. Have a go seat. Sit down. <laughs> like you're going to be all right. Like go have a seat. We'll, when you calm, when you calm down, we'll come back to, we'll revisit this conversation. You know, like, so again, yes, culturally that, that type of defiance that, that as a, as a, as an educator, as a person who culturally understands kids, kids like you folks where you came from, but then kids also read that, right? Like, oh, she like my aunt. <laughs> she like my mom. Immediately. I, I, I recognize that tone. <laughs> I recognize that tone. I recognize that face. <laughs> I, re I recognize that breath that she just took. Yep. Uh, that's, yeah, my, yeah, that's my, that's my signal. Yeah, I talk to your auntie. I talked to your auntie Charles, so I, we already had a conversation. And words, teachers are just, <laughs> but a white teacher, you know, this is the same person that will call the police. The first instinct is, oh, let me call the law. Then somebody shot and they stand back like, oh, no, nah. you dangerous. You are literally a threat. <laughs> Another thing that you, you pointed out um, a couple of lines back as we were talking was the level of connection and organization that happens amongst these white parents <laughs> to to get to get things done. So one of the topics I definitely wanted to talk about today was the increase since I think it's been they've always banned books, right? That books banning books is not a new thing that that has happened. But since about 2021 the increase and the movement that folks have been hopping on to ban books has just been insane. I think now at this point, I mean, it's over 2000 books possibly that, that have been banned um, in, in this country. And a few, a few things are like jumping out to me. One, the fact that people actually gather around and, and have groups that <laughs> <laughs> that are set. Like we're going we're gonna to get together. We're going to make sure these books is banned. Like my kid ain't going to read this. Like there's so many things going on and y'all have time to sit around being together to talk about books that aren't going to be in your child's school. I really don't, because you could take two of those books, one in each hand, and slap them people upside the head, and they wouldn't even know that you slapping upside the head with a book that they won't ban. I won't, uh, what's the name of that book? And then they just take the same list. They don't know nothing about them books. Most of those people don't know nothing about, this is the power, as you say, of coordination. Yes. See, what you're seeing, I mean, there's several steps. You know, you coordinate, and this is where the, uh, the legislative council, ALEC, is so important. These are the people who are writing 
much of the legislation that then shows up in places like Georgia and Texas and Oklahoma Georgia, and Arizona. Florida, Texas. Florida. No question. This is what, in fact, we were talking about this. We devoted a whole session to this at the Hilliard Conference in, in Atlanta because we know Georgia has been leading in some of this. But these mm-hmm. bills, you know, maybe around a couple of hundred now, so-called backlash bills, these bills that are targeted at book banning, these tar- these bills that are targeted at curriculum, these books that are targeted at trying to make open records uh, requests for curriculum, for lesson plans, uh, for for teacher emails and text messages, mm-hmm. uh, t- all these things that are going to fail in court, by the way. This is all saber rattling. But but to your to your larger point. Organization is the key. We know after Brown versus Board of Education, for example, that uh, white officials, state level officials and local officials banded together to in in extreme cases like in Arkansas and places like Prince Edward County, Virginia. They literally cancel school. They cancel school for five years in Prince Edward County, Virginia. And say, well, well, white students didn't go to school. No, what they did was take the tax money and move it over to private schools, in some cases using even the same public school buildings. And so black people paying taxes and their children couldn't go to school and white people kept going to school. This was the rise of the so-called segregation academies. And many of us, like I have students right now at Howard who graduated from private schools that started as segregated schools in the South in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, places like that. But they, but the key is they coordinated and the poor whites were given scholarships so that they could go to these schools. Well, their descendants, their grandchildren are the current hillbilly horde, the current white nationalists who have bounded together to do something like, okay, we're going to bind together ostensibly to protect our children because parents should have a say. But okay, that's fine. You can be an ignorant hillbilly. No problem. But the problem is when you go into a library and then you impose that on my child. So what they do is say, well, we've done the number headcount. We can't can take over the, uh, the PTA in this building. So what do they do? They form a private association and then they have the meeting and then they get the list from the coordinated people from around the country. Here are the books. Then you go to the librarian and say, we want these books banned. Now, a librarian by training is supposed to curate a collection that is diverse. That is the job of a trained librarian. So they're running people literally out of the librarian business. People are quitting. People are taking other jobs because they're harassing them. Some people have been fired. Now, of course, you try to take over school boards because you because local we know education is basically the largest expenditure any state has. And it's really a local issue. So you take over school boards. You start voting on that. You coordinate your efforts. That's where you get the state level and the federal level uh, uh, activities. But finally, the key to this in terms of our open enemies and by our, I mean any human being who's decent because these people are fighting for their, their whiteness is what they're fighting for. And they're being, you know, they're being launched at the rest of us by these crass politicians who are really owned by corporate entities and interests who are attempting to allow these white people to still feel good about themselves, even though they're destroying the lives of their children by with this foolishness. The key for their effectiveness is that they're organized that they coordinate, they have the same talking points, they have the same attacks, and they are not opposed the way they should be opposed. We shouldn't be looking at these people as people who can be talked with. They got to be opposed. We got to buy them intellectually. Oh, they definitely have to be opposed. And let me say this, and you can probably explain this way more eloquently than I can, but as you're talking about how they're coordinated, they're aligned, they have the same speaking points, 
Yes. When we talk about the demise of the black teacher pipeline and mm. what that did even for the coordination and alignment of black people as a community. So when you are in a community where everybody in the community is facing the same challenges, but the leaders and the educators of that community are also facing those same challenges, but also are leaders to be ready to be in opposition. That comes into the classroom. So imagine we back in 1930, 1920, 1940, 1950, and this book banning movement was going on, right? Imagine that. And you have a, a school full of Black teachers and Black administrators, and somebody's talking about banning uh, Toni Morrison's The Blue Is Eye. And I'm using that book because that is one of the books that, that's on banned lists in states, right? So you talk about you're going to ban, ban Toni Morrison's The Blue Is Eye. A bunch of Black educators, administrators, families, like, so you're not, we're not adhering to that. And we're going to talk to our children about why. We're going to actually talk to our children about who these who the opposition is, why this is happening. So now you have a mobilized community movement, right, around these issues. So it, inherently, when they dismantled the Black teacher pipeline, and in so many different Black power movements, what you'll see is when you, when you dismantle the communication systems and the communication efforts of a community, right, now it's noise everywhere. How do you centralize the communication? How do you actually make a plan when all that's dismantled? Or you have implants within the community, right? Because we can begin to, to try to work and organize, but you don't know if this white teacher who's teaching your kid is over here supporting Trump. Same thing goes for when you get your health and medical. People get word of that, that gets spread, and then you get infiltrated. So saying that to say, like, this is so much larger than people actually realize and so much more political then people actually realize and intentional and very intricate. So the advantage that these folks have to form these organizations to get together because their societies were never infiltrated. Their communities were never infiltrated. Their information, right? So their grandfather's grandfather, who was the head of the KKK and then elected to be um, the mayor of whatever town or elected to be the senator now <laughs> of whatever, you know what I mean? Right. These people are all still there pushing these same narratives that were slavery, Jim Crow, down to right now. But those those communities were never infiltrated, which means their information systems were never uprooted and dismantled. <laughs> so the same way they're allowed to pass information, work together, align, and organize, minorities don't have that same um, ability because of the infiltration that happens on purpose in our that's community. That's exactly right. That, that's what I was going to say. I think you 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 really bring us to an essential, an essential observation that you're making. We had those networks, as you say, they were intentionally destroyed. So when you read the crisis magazine, when you read the Pittsburgh courier or the Philadelphia tribune or the Norfolk journal and guide or the Atlanta daily world or the California Eagle or the Chicago defender, or the, when you read these newspapers often imagine this, uh, Mama Shana, imagine a time in the history of African people in the United States when the black press published the grade point averages of students. <laughs> Literally, you could pick up the paper in Atlanta and see the highest performing students in the in the segregated schools. And it was it was a point of pride. So and so is the valedictorian of Booker T. Washington High School. I mean, I mean, but but what happened is we don't have that black press anymore. For any number of reasons, up to and including the fact that black reporters are siphoned off as, as token hires in these white spaces, that we didn't continue to support the black. But that's one dimension. But what you're really putting your finger on is something that is incredibly important. 
when we look at the history of uh, black movements in, in, in the United States, they are often narrated, including in some of these documentaries and books that these stupid hillbillies want banned. And I'm using hillbilly not because they are from the South, but it's a mentality. You know, so, I mean, you know, you, you've got a New Yorker telling people that you want to make America great again. And all these people with a fake Southern accent running around giving C. Howe salutes and waving Confederate flags. You it, so the South is a mentality. It ain't, it ain't just any. But that haven't been said. When you saw us in the segregated schools develop curriculum. When you come forward to now the way the stories are narrated in some of these books and documentaries, as I said, that people want banned erases what you're talking about. So the story that oh, we want, we want to ban all this, these documentaries that make us feel uncomfortable, that talk about one race or another race that talks about how America is racist. And we want to ban these uh, PBS documentaries on the civil rights movement or Emmett Till. And, and you should take out these textbooks that talk about all this strife in Alabama in the 1960s. Pause. I want to take them out too. What? Yeah. You know why? Because you see the Little Rock Nine go into Little Rock High School and you don't see Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the black high school that they were in before where they were top of their class or Horace Mann High School. When you see the black students coming to integrate in all these civil rights documentaries, they don't talk about the black school teachers who, along with the black families, recruited those plaintiffs. And they don't talk about the excellence of those black schools. Black people were not fighting to come sit next to your child. And we were fighting people. for your daughter to come teach my kids either. No question. We was fighting for the money and the resources. Now, this is where it comes very important. Imagine this. This is from a brand new book that just came out by um, Donald Yakovon called Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Order and the Forging of Our National Identity. First of all, sorry, Prof, there is no hour. But I understand. I, mean, I, mean, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. I get what you mean, right? But here, let me read to you about Carl Woodson. And this is during the segregated schools. Woodson and his comrades wrote scores of textbooks on black history that were used in the black schools. We talk about Claudia, Claudette Colvin in Montgomery, Alabama, of course, who preceded Rosa Parks. And they threw her off the bus. She said that day I was on the bus and that white man come and told me to get off that bus, get out that seat. I tried to get up, but I couldn't. I felt like I had Sojourner Truth on one shoulder and Harriet Tubman on the other holding me down. And I started to cry and I just kept saying the Lord's Prayer. Why did she say that? Because these white boys had killed one of their classmates at the segregated high school. He was 17 years old. They beloved figure had been killed. And she said, I had just come from school where we had a, our regular black history lesson. So in other words, she was fortified on that bus by the history. She said, I was going to get up, but but it felt like I had Harriet to... I had, I had to sit down. I, I had, had to, to sit I had to. Man, no but, that, but that was in the 50s. Now watch this. This is what he says. He says, since nearly all Southern states employed centralized approval procedures for the adoption of school textbooks, one, this is now the 1930s, 40s, 50s, one could easily imagine that the publications of scholars like Woodson would never pass white muster. Of course, they're going to ban those books, right? Watch this. Yet from Maryland to South Carolina and west to Oklahoma, public school systems eagerly adopted his books for their segregated schools. Atlanta, New Orleans, Birmingham, St. Louis, even Tulsa, all adopted black history textbooks for their separate school systems. Rural areas in Alabama, North Carolina, and Texas followed suit. Some schools even made black history compulsory. 
and students who failed their quote Negro history end quote class at Atlanta's Booker T. Washington High School could not graduate. <laughs> now, this is how the races work. You got all black school, all black faculty, all black administration. You got hella black books. If y'all read Woodson's The Negro in Our History or read the children's books that were published by Woodson's Associated Publishers and compare them to today, you'll pick those books. I promise mm. you. Those white racists in the South ain't want no smoke with them black people. Y'all take them books. And I, mm. I and I just literally left the campus of Booker T. Washington uh, a Saturday ago when we were on the campus at Lane University Center. I went by there. Imagine that. Compulsory. And if you fail it, you can't graduate. That's the 1930s and 40s. You know what I'm saying? So we're coming forward to 2022. The point you're making is essential. It is essential. We don't remember the history of when we did have the systems you're talking about. We don't have to invent new systems. Now, we're not going back to those days. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We actually never left those days because we know the schools are more segregated now than they were then. The difference. The difference being what you said. Now the flood of white teachers is in front of I those children. I was going to say, let's make the distinction as far as kids. Kids. More segregated now in terms of children, pupils, students. Yes. Uh, than before. We, we are not talking about, um, <laughs> we're not talking about faculty. Hence, hence the Center for uh, Black Teacher Education and Rebuilding the Pipeline. Yes. Which, which brings us to the real point. We can't construct the institutional forces we had prior to the end of U.S. apartheid. What we can do is take a page from our open enemies. Y'all want to organize? We want to organize. Why do you support the center? If the center had hella resources, that's where you come for the compendium of what kind of curriculum we need. That's where the teachers get together to read and write new curriculum. That's when they come together to study those older textbooks. And in other words, it's fine to write a book about how great we were and get Harvard Press to publish it or Stanford. That's cute. You go over there. Right, what are we doing? We looking at our enemies over here who are organizing in tea meetings and Saturday nights and, and we replicate that. We got our squad over here. Well, I want to come and talk to you. No, no, you keep writing books for your friends because at the university level, it becomes, I'm going to demonstrate my intelligence to white people. Yes. That's not the kind of black yes. educators we need. We need educators who don't never go over there. You know, or if they go, they go very temporarily in the words of Tevin Campbell. Can we talk for a minute? <laughs> I'm coming back over here to the Center for Black Educator Development. And we have our 15th week in the row community form of education. Here's here the curriculum your child should know. And then finally. When your child goes in the classroom. If you're in a state where they didn't pass one of these stupid CRT laws and the CRT laws say that, uh, you know, you can't say the university of the United States is, fu is fundamentally racist. That's one of the Georgia laws that passed back in the spring. Or uh, you can't create any environment that creates a feeling of guilt or discomfort uh, or stress because of race. You say, I want that bill. I support that bill. Are you crazy? I'm not. I'm not, ma'am, because I'm coming to the school because my child came home today and said that you didn't mention anything about the white massacre in Tulsa. And she was traumatized. According to this legislation, I think you got an issue. In other words, take those CRT laws and stuff them down their throats. Do you know how fast they will back up off that CRT if we organize to come in there and say, my child was traumatized. My child felt guilt. My, my child. And here's the final thing. Those laws are not going to survive when they go to court. And if they tried to say that these laws are viable, 
they will throw those laws out faster than a black cat can wink its eye. If you take those same laws and say you didn't teach Harriet Tubman, my child was traumatized. Yes. Watch. <laughs> well, right. And again, because black people are going to be able to counter sue um, based off, off of these laws for sure. Yes. But no, what? I'm not saying counter sue. I'm saying sue first. <laughs> oh, go, go for it first. <laughs> go for it first. <laughs> Come on, I look at this curriculum. My church group got together and we are in the state of South Carolina and I don't see anything about the African Episcopal Church. I don't see the founding of a mother Emanuel. So you selling the you, Dylan Roof killed nine people at mother Emanuel. I don't see nothing about Denmark Vesey. My child was traumatized. She's a she's a member of that congregation. So uh, what we going to do, Columbia, South Carolina? What we going to do? Them white boys will back up off that law so fast. They'll be like, wait, 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 you didn't know that we went. Well, I don't care what you knew. I'm going to make you eat this law. Letter for letter, word for word, sentence for sentence. You're going to eat it all. And I want people to hear this loud and clear. They they rely on us not being organized. Right. Like that, they Teach. rely on that. That is why it is happening the way it's happening. White people are organized on purpose, right? So even as you continue to reference the hillbillies, behind hillbillies are very sophisticated, very rich. Yeah, hillbillionaires. Um, <laughs> yes. Billionaires behind the hillbillies, no question. Very dominant people who know where they can trick or get the masses, right? Yes, they're going to have uneducated people organize and go to these schools and speak up, right? Because you're going to do what I tell you. In a sense, right? You're not going to challenge me when I come to your community and tell you this is not good for your children. You want to be a good mother. You want to be a good American. You're not going to challenge those ideologies, these folks that you're referring to as hillbillies. They're not. So they can organize these people in mass numbers and then they rely on us as a black community to not be able to organize. Y'all dealing with so many struggles. Y'all education is low. Y'all out here killing each other in the street. These are the things that they think about us and our children, right? So they're not. They ain't worried about them. This movement going to go right over their heads um, and we're going to get what we want. But this is why I brought this topic up today, because, again, banning books to me also connects and people have to understand if we if we do go back to American history and talk about slavery. That's like right. the, the fact that people weren't able to read. So banning just banning literacy for black people, period. Right. They can't ban literacy right now. You can't tell like you, black people can't read. I don't think they're going to try to go back that far, but they will try to control what we can read. And that is very important for us to get ahead of that before we get overran with it. Right. Before we look up and it's too late. And I think that the, the soldiers on the front line in this fight are educators, are educators in the field. The ones who are there, the black ones who are there, because you do have some control. You do have some say so. You can talk to young people and you can organize young people. But one of the things um, that I also wanted to, to lift up, Doc, because I mean, people know you as a historian, Doc. They don't know you as a lawyer, um, but you you do have a law degree. Um, so what I would love you to speak on is the fact that this book banning, is it not against First Amendment, Amendment rights for students? Well, see, I think that's where it gets tricky. Uh, of course, it's interesting. Um, generally speaking, in you know the American legal universe ecosystem, First Amendment rights do not at, attach equally depending on which group you're in. And I'm not thinking now about racial groups. I'm thinking now about kind of social clusterings. So, for example, students and prisoners have diminished First, minute, First Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. So 
and Clarence Thomas is constantly reminding people of that when he want to give everybody a damn death penalty and give them from now on in jail. He's saying, you know, we defer to the wardens. We defer to the custodians of those who are incarcerated. So you don't get the First Amendment right to exercise your First Amendment rights in the same way as someone who is not incarcerated. Similarly, mm-hmm. children, you know, and of course, we all heard this phrase, the Latin phrase that lawyers bandy about all the time. But everybody knows it because, you know, in loco parentis, in place of the parents, the school administrator, and the teacher ostensibly serves a kind of in loco parentis function. So when you go to a school, you can't just wear anything. That's why you can have, you know, we're going to make y'all wear uniforms. No, I want to express my First Amendment. No, you in school, which means you have a diminished access to First Amendment rights. But here's where it gets tricky when it comes to book banning. It's one thing to use the First Amendment to ride in on the First Amendment. And this is, of course, the whole jurisprudence in some ways of John Roberts. John Roberts, who's, you know, seizing on this this invented notion that corporations are people. And then using Citizens United to say that they have the right to free speech and First Amendment rights. They can spend unlimited amount of money. That's part of the reason we in this mess we in right now. John Roberts, and of course, having loosed his Frankenstein, he he didn't lost his damn mind. He peeing on himself because he realized what he did and he can't revert it because now, you know, people don't have the same respect for the court. Not that we ever should have in some ways. But when it comes to book banning, mm-hmm. when you say I'm the parent, I don't want that librarian to serve or that school to serve in local parentis and picking the books that my child will have access to. That's the argument that might get some traction, but here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in when um, Shana Terrell comes in and says, my child doesn't have access to the bluest eye and I want her to have access to the bluest eye. See, the thing about the first amendment is one thing for you to say you want this or don't want this for your child, but when you then try to impose on other people's children that right, I think that's where they're going to be destroyed in court when it comes to book buying. Because the role of a librarian is to say, I want you to have access to everything. Now, here's the twist in Florida and other places they'll try, they've tried to work in. Age appropriateness. So particularly when it comes to gender, they're, 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 they're after all these books on the lists that they have with you know LBGTQIA content and they say my child too young you know this is the same source of the you know DeSantis that puffer fish is don't say gay bill and this kind of thing those kind of issues political issues for sure I think they're going to have less legal cover when it comes out to outright book banning but in the in the area of age appropriateness they might be able to find some traction for the same reason that you can't walk into a, a middle school or elementary school and see some things that you might find in a high school library. Yes. And even if you go in a high school library, you might not find things that might be sexually explicit or things because there are decisions that have been made and, you know, it rules when it comes to what is pornography, what isn't pornography. I mean, these things get a little murky. But again, that really isn't their uh, objective. You said this at the beginning. Their real objective is political. They're trying to intimidate people. I don't expect these books to stay out of libraries, which you say, which you say, if we don't organize, they're just going to intimidate people. They're going to run librarians out of the profession. They're going to run teachers out of the profession and they're going to use it. Finally, as you say, hyped up by these billionaires who are trying to get tax breaks and everything else, they're going to use it to attain elective office like this fool, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, who ran on the anti-CRT and the book ban and stuff to become the governor of Virginia. That's really their mm-hmm. game. It's political game and it's a game of intimidation. The books are uh, an excuse. Definitely, for sure. But again, I just get so like, 
I don't even know the word to describe it, that that's what's behind all of that. And I need folks to see it. And again, very intricate, right? Like very intricate systems um, of how they organize and what they do. Um, and there's most definitely people in rooms plotting and very strategically on how they're going to do this. This rise of, of book banning and intimidation, once again, is not by accident. Because once you get these people mobilized to do these things, they're going to be mobilized to then ban other things <laughs> and ask for other laws and things to be changed and have other senators, mayors, politicians in their pockets. Right. Like this. This is the game. And I should and I should add now that you said that it triggered a memory. Of course, you say other things. They led with the other things. We look at the Hobby Lobby case and the First Amendment case. In other words, I don't want to make a cake for a gay couple. Yes. This is the point of entry. In other words, religious freedom. That's what they're trying to tie. Now, this goes, of course, right back to the Brown era, religious instruction, religious education. And what you see this current federal bench, particularly the Supreme Court doing, is enabling through the First Amendment, these white nationalists to practice their racism. So there's always been a line between where you could use state resources for private education or not. But using the religious exemption, what you're beginning to see now is the federal courts giving an ear to and support for taking public tax dollars for parochial education. Now, mm -hmm. you know, we won't get into the charter schools and voucher programs debate, but let's be very clear about that. That those are two avenues that these racists are using to siphon public dollars into spaces where they can restrict access based on race, based on gender. Is it this a this is a Catholic school and we using public tax dollars and you can take your tuition and we decide what goes in the library. We decide. So you're absolutely right. It gets very complicated. And the First Amendment plays a central role in that kind of stuff. For sure. And a racist is always peddling Jesus uh to no question. Advance, <laughs> advance their notions forward all the time. I just stop at that. I, Jesus, though. I mean not to be confused with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Wait, say you said that which Jesus? white Rambo Jesus with the gun and the missiles and everything, not to be confused with Jesus. Not not Jesus of Nazareth, for sure. <laughs> Jesus of the jungles of uh, Southeast Asia. Jesus as uh, uh, Rocky Balboa. <laughs> yeah. Yo, that is so funny. And I mean, but you're right. You're right. Because again, some of these people really will say it like guns and God. No, no. No, how that, how that go in the same? <laughs> I don't, I don't understand that. I don't think I don't think God understands that either. But well, unless you say onward Christian soldiers. In other words, they do have a military dimension of it. But anyway, they do in a sense. But yeah. again, Muslim. This is where the anti-Muslim had go back to the Crusades. We are prepared. Our God is God. Your God is an idol. Oh, for you, your wife will always come up with something. To something. Something. Just calm down, because this. In fact, Du Bois said this. Du Bois said in that same article Chris Stewart it, it, Chris is, is writing uh, about, he quotes him in 1935, and he says, the, the Negro doesn't need segregated schools or mixed schools. The Negro needs education. And guess mm -hmm. what? So does everybody else. Du Bois said, if you go to a mixed school where there is broad sympathy, where for each other, where there is an exposure to different ideas, it can help you. But if you go to a school where the teachers aren't qualified, where I don't care whether it's all black, all white, or in between, you're you're going to be set up for failure. What these people don't understand is their racism is blinding them to the fact that the only people going to get that we're going to get hurt, but everybody going to get hurt. Your children going to be hurt. And in a world that is overwhelmingly non-white, that is shrinking by the second, the L look, 
and to, to, to remix Michael Jackson and them stop the L you take may be your own. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna destroy themselves. I at that point I'm like, hey, I'm just all my thing is let me just step back because let's just keep our babies out of the way. They get ready to kill each other. Well, you know, again, very strategically find a, trying to find multiple ways not to kill themselves. And again, when people understand what's behind a bunch of this stuff, right? The book, the book banning is, is the surface of it. But even when you're talking about the L's that they're going to take and their children are going to take and the lengths that they will go to to preserve whiteness, right? So far as, and this is a whole nother podcast for us to get into, is the, the abortion law <laughs> and, and overturning that. You will not keep killing these white babies. You're not. Uh, we we will not be a dying race. Like all of that, all of it, it, it all of it is in the preservation of whiteness. All of it as well to take you know take a page from Janet Jackson, you my good brother. You know this is a story about control. Ain't <laughs> <laughs> really about. I mean, babies, not babies, abortions, not. No, you are a woman, and therefore I get to tell you what to do. This is the heart of white patriarchy. Just the way, and, and, and so you know, well, you want to, we need you know life and precious. This ain't about life and precious. This is about you want to tell women what to do, including in the middle of the night when anybody looking, you want to do something else. And this is what I mean about propaganda and like why the annoyance of America, right? You cannot be here saying you pro life and support the death penalty. They're one in the same. I don't understand. I've never understood that argument since I was a child. I never understood that argument since I was a child. So we are talking here about bringing pro-life. Those same people that I see, you know, demonstrating in front of abortion clinics should be the same people that I see demonstrating every day when we're talking about putting a full-grown human life to death. That's right. Nobody That's gets right. to play judge and jury. Nobody. And you can't decide when you do and when you don't. But literally, since I was a child, never understood. If you're going to stand for pro-life, then be pro all of life, right? I just never understood it, never got it. Confusing to me. Um, but again, these masses, these people will follow like sheep, the best idea and what people think in their head, what people are going to put money into, what people are going to tell you is good for the country and to be American. You know, we kill criminals and save unborn lives. But if you're going to be pro-life, be pro-life. That's exactly right. Because every the, the human, if you're going to be pro-life, be pro-life. Um, like I said, but that's a whole nother, uh, <laughs> podcast oh, that we can draw into. And get into, but um, to wind down, Doc, I just again always want to appreciate you and, and shedding light on on the things that are happening. Because one of the biggest things that I think we are also missing from the classroom that you do so well is, which is why you connect with our young people. You give us historical perspective, but are able to really draw current events into into what's happening, and that's important because I don't think that our, our young people get enough of that. And we, and I'm saying we just as a whole, aren't educated enough in the way that you are to provide that historical context. I'm telling you, even today, talking about these segregation academies, bam, like that's a lesson um, right there for folks. That's a lesson for somebody to speak about that. But you do a f fantastic job of always I'm providing us with that. <laughs> I'm part of the team. And I learned it at the need of the Ace of Hilliard and all them. And I learned it in our community, Philadelphia Freedom Schools. And it's just an honor and a privilege and a duty, really. It's a duty for, you know, you and me, for those of us who are in this, for folk listening, how can I get involved? It's our duty. Don't be scared of these anti-CRT laws, because if they're serious about banning anything that makes people feel uncomfortable when it comes to race, 
those laws apply to us too. It is our duty then to say, why would you put this LBGTQ child in danger? Why would you support racial profiling? In other words, oh, oh no, because see the next step, then they want to put curriculum in a place that is extremely intolerant. But according to the own law that came out your own mouth. And I want to say one last, <laughs> I want to say one last thing, because this is just all my heart. And I need to say this again to the people out here who scream pro-life and even these politicians and everybody who's pushing these bills. And I'm not I'm not making a statement on this show or citing either way. But what I will say, these are the same fools, your granddaddies and everybody else who was hanging black people. But again, screaming pro-life like less like we got to be clear about what people's agendas are and, and what they are pushing forward and continue to educate um, our young people. So, Doc, we, we again, I thank you. I salute you for, for all that you do to continue to pour into these conversations because it, it is necessary. I also want to tell the people out there, um, if you want to see more of Dr. Carr and some other really great black male educators, please join us at our Black Male Educating Convening, which will be November 17th to the 19th. Make sure that you go register. You can get on our website and you can register. But if you want to see more of Doc, if you want to see more of us, this show live and in person. Um, in the show live? Well, we're trying to do that. We're trying to do that. So I'm speaking into existence, Doc. And if we don't do live, we will be recording some content, most definitely live from the convening for folks to be able to consume. But if you want to see more, Doc, and more of dope, amazing Black male educators and advocates and supporters of them, please join us for the Black male educator convening November 17th through the 19th. How can we get more information on it? Um, you can visit our website. Um, is where you can go to get more to get more information on the Black male educator convening. I mean, that's after the midterms, right? Yes. And all over social media, you can follow us um, at the center on IG. You can uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and you'll see all the links to go ahead and click and register as well. Okay. So definitely can get, get more. We might, we might need to all uh, form up like that, depending on how these midterms go. So we might just need to all be down there. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we definitely might. We don't even know what's going to be nope. by the third. In November. <laughs> and when we talk about a place of centralized communication and, and how to spread the word, we're, this is a national convening. This is a national convening. So come be a part of what's going on. Come be a part of us rebuilding that Black teacher pipeline and rebuilding our forms of central communication so our people can organize and advocate for our children. Okay. And protect our children for sure. But Doc, thank you so much uh, for today. Wonderful conversation as always. Um, and just love you. Love you. Love you. Shannon said, read the bluest eye. <laughs> I'm just, I use that. That's one of them. But they they trying to be in the bluest eye, Doc. I said, what? Hey, but look, they looking at the bluest eye. But my thing is, y'all better go get Song of Solomon. <laughs> Remember when they had the seven days and they was like, okay, you blew up them girls in Birmingham. Okay, whose day is that? Sunday. And everybody who, when they, when they kill a child, every black man in the community had a day. So the guy who was Sunday said, okay, I'm starting to collect stuff. Why? Because how many did they kill? Okay, mm -hmm. my day. No, go get Saga Solomon. You put the blue aside down. Anyway, <laughs> well, again, they don't read. They don't read. So all they all they doing is picking books that have been in the American literature selection, right? So that that that's that's a whole nother again. That's a whole nother thing. Thank you, Mama Shay. You know. I you thank you. Thank you so much. And everybody out there watching, all my co-conspirators, we thank you. We love you. We will see you here next time. Peace, y'all.